0: This week on Unforgotten, after not having seen Philip for several days, Bobby filed a missing person report with the Lawrence County Sheriff's Office. That's the thing. Sheriff Mitchell stated it was recovered after it had been, quote, handled and molested. There were six teeth in the skull, so they were able to use dental records to confirm the remains were Philip.
1: A cousin found Ricky deceased in his pickup truck in the early morning hours of April 12th, 1990. Ricky, that day, had followed his normal routine in the morning. I bet Ricky didn't know she took out that life insurance policy. This is where things kind of go sideways if they haven't already. John Johnson left his Hillsboro home in the Mountain Home community near Moulton and was last seen in that area along County Road 294. Why did he not get reported until September?
0: Hey everyone, this is Sellers, and this
1: is Stormy, and And this this is is Unforgotten, where each episode will highlight unsolved missing, murdered, and suspicious death cases in Alabama in order
0: to raise awareness and hopefully obtain some answers for victims and their families. Please remember that any individual referenced in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law, and any opinions or views expressed in the podcast are solely those of participants. Listener discretion is advised, as some of the content discussed in the podcast may contain violence or graphic descriptions and may not be suitable for all audiences. Be sure to join our Unforgotten Patreon channel today to gain exclusive benefits, including early access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. By subscribing, you'll also be supporting the efforts of ACCA in assisting families in raising awareness for Alabama cold cases.
1: And now, for episode 24.
0: Hey guys, and welcome back. How's your week been? It's been busy, you know, one of those, but good, I think, otherwise. You got the countdown going? I do. The 31st.
1: Oh, not far. No, there's a little bit of time in between. Um, the countdown, by the way. For all you out there that don't know the secret talk we're giving right here, <laughs> it's, our, it's our moving. We sign on the 31st and we move on the 11th.
0: Yeah, knock on wood. Yeah. Nothing's going to happen. And you finally got a house.
1: Yeah. I don't think there's anything left other than
0: some yeah. act of God. <laughs> so, which is not going to happen. Nope. Nope. Huh. We are we're all doing that. Yep. yep. Manifesting mm-hmm. it into existence. So, woo, new house. Hey. Yeah. How I went and got you? my hair cut today, Ooh. and I feel like a new person.
1: I need to do that so
0: bad. I cut like several inches off of it.
1: Ooh, did you? It makes you feel so great, doesn't it?
0: It does. I did. it had gotten like, my hairdresser was out on maternity leave, and mm-hmm. so she just got back. And like, I've been coloring my hair myself. And so I get there today, and um, I'm like, please don't be mad at me. I tried to do my best. And she was like, okay, well, I hate to tell you that um, your best wasn't just two spots that you missed. <laughs> you missed a lot more. And I was like, well, it was in the back and I couldn't see it. And she said, well, everybody else could. So <laughs> i found walking around with like silver dollars in my hair. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Oh, uh, well, you know, now it just looks healthier and oh, felt like a yeah. new person. Got a new, I walked out of there with a new attitude. I need to do that really badly. Maybe I'll get a new attitude, too. Yeah, I probably needed a new attitude. I might need to go another inch. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, we kick off each show with bits of county trivia. And I'm always fascinated by the things that we end up finding when we're researching this. I know. And then I'm also kind of embarrassed because I've lived here my entire life. And sometimes I'm like, what? never heard that (sighs) didn't know that um or that really isn't even that far from me and i had no idea so one of these things that totally makes me feel like an idiot is that we have a couple of counties that were actually established before alabama ever even became a state oh wow didn't find that well, I guess, out until today. You
1: know that's probably pretty common. I bet that happens in a lot of states. From
0: I'm back. sure it is. I just and I probably learned this. I remember taking an Alabama history class in school, mm-hmm. but I think that was in like middle school. Mm-hmm. I've been out of school for a while now, so yeah, I don't remember. But I feel like that probably should be pretty common knowledge, and it was not common knowledge for me. I was like, what? <laughs> no idea. On February 6th of 1818, roughly a year before Alabama became a state, the Alabama Territorial Legislature took a portion of Blount County and created Lawrence County.
1: Yeah, that's that's just rude.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, how dare you? <laughs> Even after Lawrence County was formed, there were a couple of towns, and oh, I'm going to like kick my butt because now I can't remember the name of the town, That actually like pulled out of their county because this was back way back. They wouldn't build bridges to connect them to the other main counties so that they could travel back and forth. So now that place is part of, um, I think, Colbert County. Oh, wow. So it's just like a whole lot of redrawing and redoing like, oh, we don't want to be part of you anymore. We're going to be part of somebody else. (laughs) It's crazy. It's crazy. The 2020 census estimated Lawrence County to have a little under 33,000 residents. So, it's a pretty big county. Like, in comparison to a lot of the counties that we've talked about, you know, we don't get into a lot of the double digits, or we haven't yet, I don't think. Yeah, I think Um, just uh, Jefferson. Jefferson was our biggest so far, which Jefferson is the biggest. We're getting into some of the bigger counties, but I didn't realize Lawrence County had that many people. Well, you know, they stole from everybody. (laughs) <laughs> it's because they just keep moving around. They're like, oh, I yeah. just feel like taking a piece of you today.
1: Yeah. <sighs> Located in the scenic northwestern part of the state, Lawrence consists of primarily limestone valleys and rolling uplands dotted with sturdy oak and pine forests, though the occasional level plain adds a touch of intrigue to the natural canvas. Accompanied by Joe Wheeler State Park and Wheeler Lake, the tranquil Tennessee River. Traces Lawrence's northern border. Portions of the Bankhead National Forest, a hundred and eighty thousand acre forest filled with bluffs, canyons, waterfalls, and lakes, extends into the southern region. That sounds so beautiful. Reminds me a little bit of here, actually,
0: between Washington and Oregon. We got almost all of that. It's lots of hills and um, valleys, and it's very mountainy yeah. in that area. Yeah, sounds very pretty. But it is really pretty. Nestled in the heart of Oakville, the Jesse Owens Memorial Park stands tribute to the legendary athlete who defied all odds. A beacon of inspiration, the park not only honors Jesse's remarkable achievements in the face of adversity, but also celebrates the spirit of determination and the courage that he embodied. Jesse excelled in the 100-meter and 200-meter dashes, long jump, and relay. In 1935, he set three world records within an hour of a meet in Michigan, something that has not occurred since, according to the Olympics website. I thought that was pretty awesome. That, that's a long time to hold records like that.
1: Yeah, I was trying to think really, 1935?
0: I mean, that's almost 100 years. And when I was reading about his athletic resume, mm-hmm. I think that would be a good way to put it. Yeah. They were talking about how different times were Then you know, we were still dealing with segregation and all of that, and that he couldn't get a scholarship to Ohio State, and that when they were traveling to do these meets and things like that, he was still having to basically, like, get his food as takeout and eat outside. Like, he couldn't even eat inside with people because he was African-American, and so he was still being separated from Mm -hmm. all of his teammates and all of this stuff. So it was, there were a lot of challenges in front of him, but he was very determined to succeed in this. Kind of makes the
1: whole thing even that much more awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Just, yeah,
0: the perseverance and all of that. And it just adds to the fact that in 1936, he traveled to Berlin with the U.S. Olympic team for the Olympics, which were overseen by Hitler that year. Mm -hmm. And, Clenched four gold medals in track and field, which shattered racial barriers and showcased the power of athletic prowess to unite the world. And one of the comments was that, you know, everybody knows what Hitler was trying to accomplish
1: Mm -hmm. and
0: that this was kind of like incredibly offensive to him. That here comes Jesse and he's like doing so phenomenally well in these events. And the Germans loved him. Yeah, yeah. And everybody really liked him, so it's just i don't it's awesome. I think it's awesome.
1: one of those things that at least that that good thing happened in the middle of all that bad,
0: yeah, with sprawling green spaces, interactive exhibits, and a statue capturing Jesse and midstride, visitors are invited to relive history and immerse themselves in the journey of a sports icon. The Jesse Owens Memorial Park not only pays homage to a trailblazer, but also encourages everyone to reach for their own dreams, reminding us that even in the midst of challenges, the human spirit can soar to extraordinary heights. And to kind of round that out, I found a quote from him that kind of resonated and summed up that whole thing.
1: And it kind of is a good thought to live by.
0: Yeah. Find the good. It's all around you. Find it, showcase it, and you'll start believing it. I like that. Our first case today is going to take us to the East Lawrence community. Born on May 21st, 1965 in St. Joseph County, Michigan, Philip Newton Shelton was one of two boys born to Bobby Shelton and Paulette Johnson Shelton. At some point, Bobby and Paulette separated and Bobby moved to Moulton, Alabama, and it looks like he married Ann Shelton, but it's not really clear when all of that took place. And I don't really know whether Philip and Dean actually moved with him to Alabama initially. Bobby and Ann ended up having a son named Matt, so Philip and Dean gained a half brother. After a stint in the US Navy in the mid 1980s, Philip began working at his father's grocery store, Shelton's Grocery in Moulton. That's about the extent we have of any history on him. There's not a whole lot of information. I couldn't even find a picture of him, and that really kind of broke my heart. And as we get into this, I don't really see a lot of interviews that occurred with his mom. And there may have been some, and they've just been lost over time. Yeah. But a lot of time passes before any answers are found. And his dad ends up passing away before there's any final resolution. Actually, there's still no final resolution, which is why we're talking about this. I don't know... If maybe after he got out of the Navy, he moved to Alabama to help his dad because his dad had opened this grocery store. Or if maybe he had already moved to Alabama and just decided to come back. Not really sure. Hmm. On July 18th, 1991, after not having seen Philip for several days, Bobby filed a missing person report with the Lawrence County Sheriff's Office. At the time of his disappearance, Philip was living in the East Lawrence community. But authorities believe he was last seen in the Mountain Home community, a location that they would go back to on four separate occasions during their investigation. Phillip's car was later found just off Alabama 33 in that Mountain Home community, I believe, though it's unclear exactly when the car was located. I could find nothing listing the date of when that was found. I don't know if it was found shortly after he was reported missing. I don't know if it was found in 2003. I have no idea. There's nothing that puts a date on that. Yeah, I had trouble finding things about that, too. And that's disappointing. Um, I didn't get a chance to call Lawrence County. I always try to do that before we record, but I didn't get a chance to call them this time. I am going to, but maybe they can give us some dates on that stuff. Despite numerous searches, including searches with cadaver dogs, a search of a nearby pond with divers, a wooded area, and an abandoned pit, no concrete leads were formed until 2003. So he's reported missing in 1991, and it takes until 2003 for them to get information. In early June of 2003, a human skull and an old tennis shoe were found in a wooded area off Alabama 33 in the Mountain Home community, less than a mile from where his car had been located. Somebody in the woods looking for Ginseng, I think, actually came across this. I remember seeing something about that too, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Additional searches resulted in the location of parts of a pelvis, a femur, several ribs, pieces of a spinal column, pieces of arm bones, and fingers. And I actually saw a quote from, I think it was the sheriff um, of Lawrence County saying they felt pretty confident it was a burial site. There were six teeth in the skull, so they were able to use dental records to confirm the remains were Phillip's. According to Phillip's obituary, his official date of death was July 17, 1991. But I'm not really sure how they came up with that date. It said his dad had not seen him for several days, so I'm not sure what several days means in the grand scheme of things. And maybe, mm. maybe his dad had not seen him, but somebody else had seen him. You know, and maybe Hmm. July 17th is just the last date they can say for certain somebody saw him. In 2007, though, there was a cluster. Uh -uh. The Lawrence County Commission approved the sale of numerous unused vehicles being held in the county lot, apparently without talking to the Lawrence County Sheriff's Office prior to making that sale. Oh, wow. Yes, the entire collection was sold for $2,000 to a man named Willard Cole. Lawrence County Sheriff Gene Mitchell took office a few weeks after the sale of the vehicles and told the Decatur Daily that the sale included 26 unused Mark Sheriff's vehicles, a motorhome belonging to the county EMA, a Department of Conservation boat, and at least four privately owned vehicles two of which were part of ongoing investigations. One of those investigations was Phillips. He was not happy, like not happy at all. And it was, it was just a mess. I was reading about this um, in the article that was published about it. And it was just, it was really a mess. There was nothing really from what they reported anyway, The commissioner that made the motion to sell these vehicles never really gave any kind of listing or identification of what vehicles he wanted to sell, supposedly for scrap metal. The titles weren't given to the guy who bought them, so they were still at the sheriff's office, and it was just a disaster. I can't even imagine. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't just Phillips' case. Not just because they had these that were part of the ongoing investigations, but one of the things they were really upset about was the fact that there were these marked sheriff's vehicles that were out there. They knew they had recovered at the time of the article, like 15 of the vehicles, but they knew that some of those had already been sold and were going to somebody in Muscle Shoals. And what they were really upset about was the fact that really there was nothing wrong, I don't think, with these sheriff's office vehicles. And that essentially somebody could repair these And then use them for nefarious reasons. Yeah. Oh, wow. So they were not happy. They did. I don't know if they ever recovered all of them, but they did at least at that point get 15 back, including Phillips. Well, that's good. Yeah. Although, what happened in between? However, Sheriff Mitchell. Well, that's the thing. Sheriff Mitchell stated it was recovered after it had been, quote, handled and molested. And that he was not sure how much value it would be to the investigation since the integrity of the evidence had been compromised. Mm-hmm. Understandably so. right? Yeah. I mean, you don't know who's been in it. No, you don't know. Yeah, no chain of I evidence. mean, right. They kept it. They went ahead and got it and they kept it just in case. But at that point, the chain of custody is broken.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You don't know yeah. who all has been in it. You don't know what's been done to it. You know, yeah, and that would take a lot of work to prove something didn't happen right. during that time frame. Too. Right. Yeah. Lawrence County Sheriff's Office suspects foul play and they have suspected foul play since pretty much the beginning. But they've never listed um any persons of interest publicly that I've been able to find. Um and nobody's ever been arrested. And then in two, I think it was in 2007, Philip's father died. Mm. So Philip's case is still unsolved. They still, I assume, are working on it. And it sounded like at least in 2007, which was the most recent time I found a mention of it, um, were actively working on it. Well, that's good. So, yeah. Yeah. If you or anybody you know has any information related to the death of Philip Sheldon, please contact the Lawrence County Sheriff's Office. We will have the contact information at the end of the episode and also linked in the episode details.
1: The next case today is also a case with very limited information, or at least initially. But as I was digging, I found that it seems like it was a very twisted tragedy. You'll understand as I kind of unfold everything for you here today, because this was not what I was expecting when I looked into this case.
0: When you texted me about it yesterday, I was like, I can't wait to hear about it.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I say it's interesting and the investigative part of us wants to be all excited about it. And then we start thinking, well, it's not really exciting for the families that were involved. So I try to kind of taper that back a bit, but it it was definitely, well, you'll see. Definitely interesting. If you look for Ricky Terry online, as Thomas Ricky Terry was referred to, or even search through newspapers.com, you will likely find a couple minimal articles that a cousin found Ricky deceased in his pickup truck in the early morning hours of April 12, 1990. His truck was sitting at Full Gospel Holiness Tabernacle parking lot, which was situated off of Highway 157 on County Roads 246 near Moulton. And you'll find an obituary. The most recent article I found was actually from April 12th of this year, one of only about three articles I initially found. It was the 33rd year since he was murdered. It tells us that the Lawrence County DA is looking for the public's help to solve the murder which included a ten thousand dollars governor's award, which was established back in two thousand eight, and of course only if information leads to an arrest and conviction. We always want to caveat that because sometimes people misunderstand
0: and they think, "Well, I gave you information." Yeah, so and I think that is a a big thing. People call in with information, and. That caveat's there to make sure that it's credible information and it's not just anything. Yep. And I always wonder how many people, like, argue the point. Yeah. Um, Well, you know, we've heard people say, well, I didn't get any reward money for the information Mm -hmm. that I turned in. And we've seen people that have, um, you know, the petitions. I saw where somebody had, like, this wasn't actually that long ago. There was a petition circulating where somebody, um, they were petitioning for a family to receive Reward money in some case. And I don't, I can't remember what it was, and I'm not even sure what happened with it. So I'm not sure if there's other stipulations on that. Yeah, good question. But it's just to make it's to encourage those with legitimate, credible information to come forward. It's not a bad thing. Yep, I agree.
1: Well, when I first did a quick search on Ricky's case a couple of weeks ago or so, I read this article, and near the bottom of the article, there was an advertisement right after what, you know, I just mentioned above. And it looked like the article was done, so, you know, that seemed to be all you could really find when digging was just that and a couple other very brief articles. But suddenly, when I was researching again, I saw a headline from LA Times that read, As Family Prayed, Tammy Got a gun." I think I I know. Well, that kind of is eye-catching. It seems like something you'd find in yeah. early times. But I, I think I even remember kind of seeing it the first time I looked, but just pretty much skipped over it because I was not finding any information locally. And, you know, when you don't find information locally, you don't find it naturally. So, you know, I really didn't pay attention. It, the more I think about it, I think I did see it, but I just didn't pay attention. But... It really wasn't hidden, but I think it was easy to look past because of that. So I decided to slow down because, well, you know, I was digging, and when you dig, you really kind of pay more attention. So I slowed down and I was really hoping to find at least one more source that I could use that maybe would get just a little bit more info on the case. And in the Google preview of the article, I saw the name Ricky Terry in bold. And I thought, oh, I better read this. The full preview on Google said, Ball added it up. Ricky Terry was killed while talking to someone he knew. At first, I never thought it would be a hard one to solve, Ball said. And kind of dot, dot, dot. So, of course, that pulled me in. Yeah. I went back and I reread the article from the Molten Advisor that I read before from this year. And they mentioned wanting new leads or anything of the sort. And at the bottom, where I had seen the advertisement, I realized that I had missed just a bit below the advertisement, which mentions the LA Times article, and mentioned that it was a story on Terry's ex-wife who was charged with a shooting in Indiana. Oh, So I Still kind of haven't figured out why the article was in Los Angeles Times and not one in like one of the big papers in Alabama or even in Indiana. But I did a search and could not find any other articles about this, you know, to that I think, kind
0: of extent. I think sometimes there is, and this isn't trying to throw any kind of shade at Alabama media, but I think mm-hmm. sometimes families try to get information out in Alabama media And it's either lost in the shuffle, as in, like, they get so much stuff in, they don't see it. Um, You know, kind of like, I get emails sometimes, and my inbox will be flooded that I will not realize I have something for several days. Mm -hmm. Or the news just, they don't think it's newsworthy, so they don't pick it up. Or they don't pick it up because they can't pick it up, if you catch my drift. Mm -hmm. And so they reach out to other places because I came across something similar in another County. Again, I believe it was the California paper um, writing inmates from a jail in another County, which we've heard about
1: Mm -hmm. and we've talked
0: about had sent letters about the treatment they had received. And it wasn't just one inmate. It was several. And there was a whole big article about things that had been going on in this jail and had been going on for a while. But the local papers didn't hear it. Nobody had it. Yep. And I think it's because they're like, okay, if I can't get somebody in Alabama to pick it up, I'll get whoever I can to pick it up. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I could see that.
1: Well, I also read a follow-up article from the original Moulton Advisor article from this year that I actually hadn't seen the last time. It was about two weeks after the other one on April 26. And it had another bit of the story that was kind of buried in the article, which gave us just more information. So after, after sharing all of this, here's the revised summary of the cases I've gleaned. According to the L.A. Times article from 2001, Ricky had married his childhood sweetheart, Tammy, dropping out of high school to do so. Uh, And I'll caveat this. The way it was written, I don't know if they both dropped out of high school or just she did. I kind of think that maybe she did because I had to do some calculating. And she was 16 and he was around 18. So he had probably already
0: graduated. And I'm thinking probably so. They divorced in 86 and they'd been married for 10 years. So that's 76. Mm -hmm. So um, that probably wasn't quite as uncommon.
1: Yeah. Well, as you said, being married for 10 years, which is pretty good for high school sweethearts, honestly, if you think about it, especially if she was only 16. They also had a three-year-old daughter, but they did divorce in 1986. They seem to have parted on good terms. Although this could possibly just be, you know, in light of their daughter. A lot of parents try to make it at least appear that they are getting along for the sake of their kids. So.
0: They seem to have parted on good terms, says who? Oh, well, that says the article.
1: <laughs> we don't yeah. know much further than that. There's a yeah. little bit of background that we probably will never know. But so skip forward to April of 1990, to
0: so four, four years. years.
1: Yeah, right. four years later, yep.
0: Oh, look at seemed, my math getting
1: better. Yeah, you're doing pretty good. Um, nothing seemed to really have happened, or at least nothing worth mentioning in the papers anyway. So we skip forward to April of 1990. And Ricky, that day, had followed his normal routine in the morning of April 12th of 1990. He visited a local restaurant that he often went to and then fed his horses. After this, nothing was routine. We don't know what happens in between, but there were reports of several vehicles in the area that were noticeable, is what the article kind of made it seem. But one witness in particular said they saw a cream or light-colored car traveling at a very high speed, leaving the area of the church where Ricky was shortly thereafter
0: found. A cream or light-colored car? Mm-hmm. hmm
1: and so, um, I would like to know
0: what she drove. Yeah, I just want to know what kind of car it was. Mm-hmm. Was it a fast car? Was it a two-door or four-door?
1: Yeah, that's Sedans, all
0: sports car, that convertible. was mentioned.
1: Yeah, that's all that was mentioned. So, I am guessing in a police report somewhere it may have had more information, but nothing that was shared. A cousin saw Ricky's red truck in the parking lot of the tabernacle, so he stopped to see what Ricky was doing. He found Ricky slumped over and had been shot several times with what later was confirmed to be six shots from a 22 caliber weapon. Hmm. He also, yeah, uh, I mean six. That's a lot. Especially when you realize what I'm about to tell you.
0: A 22. <laughs> also, that's like pew pew. It's yeah. like a little gun.
1: Yeah. He also had a wound on his hand, which presumably was a defense wound, like maybe trying to fend off the shooter. Mm And It appeared that from the SBI's investigation, they believe the shooter was in the passenger seat. So if you think, six shots in the passenger seat. That's a lot. That's close range. Doesn't that seem? Yeah. Yeah, that seems a lot. That seems angry to me. But Also in the seat partly hidden by his body, was a small purse. <gasps>
0: oh.
1: And this turned out to be his ex-wife's purse, as I'm sure everybody's <sighs> guessing right about now. Holy
0: crap. Yeah.
1: Tammy did tell authorities that the purse was left in the truck long before the shooting.
0: Yeah, I'm And sure. at
1: first, yeah. <laughs> and at first it seemed that she couldn't have killed Ricky due to the activities that she had that day. And they don't elaborate on whether they disproved those activities or not. But she did pass two lie detector tests, including one denying that she even had a gun.
0: Okay, we've talked about this before. Yes. I know, lie but detectors. I, okay. I'm I being, mean, they're good tools, being, as you said. They are, and I'm yeah. being really biased right now. Yeah. I'm not being yeah. very objective. Well, I know. And it's
1: easy not to be because,
0: well, you know, it She Shot at somebody in Indiana. Yeah, yeah. She had a gun. She shot at somebody in Indiana. Oh, can't imagine.
1: Soon the police found a person who claimed to have sold a 22 caliber Ruger handgun to David Martin. <gasps> David Martin. The man at the time she had been dating. We
0: have a missing David Martin.
1: We'll get there, because that kind of freaked me out. I actually had to go look. <laughs> I had to go look and make sure that the years didn't match up because there was in in no way this would totally different. Oh, I
0: think he was. Yeah, I was going to say, I think he actually went missing before this.
1: Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, totally couldn't be the same person because I really looked to make sure because I was like, oh, that would be a big coincidence. Yeah. Um, Ballistics confirmed that it could have been the weapon from the murder, And then Tammy changed her story. She admitted that she had the gun and had given it to mm. Ricky because he was afraid of someone. We don't know oh, who. Sweet Jesus. That's all we know. Yeah, that's all that was mentioned. So I don't know who she was trying to claim he was having a problem with, but nothing was ever determined as far as we can tell. So David also took a polygraph, which indicated deception when he said he didn't know anything about the murder. Okay. Huh.
0: Yeah, like she didn't have a gun.
1: Yeah, and that could be the extent of it. Who knows? You know, they were trying to cover that up, obviously. So the investigation then just kind of seems to stall. And this is basically where Ricky's story is at for, well, since then, at least in the public eye. One extra little bit of information Tammy also took out a life insurance policy on Ricky for $1 million. Mm. Wow. And, yeah, there was, there was a bit of a battle with the insurance company because apparently there is a clause in it about not smoking. And apparently some cigarettes were found on Ricky. And so they contested it. But she did end up actually being able to obtain $250,000 plus okay. interest. Yeah. Yeah. What I know, (laughs) know. seriously, but
0: oh my god, they should have had to prove that they should have had to prove that he smoked them just because they were found on him doesn't mean that he smoked them. I mean, okay, probably, but come on, yeah, but still, but still, I mean, we're talking about murder here, though.
1: I I mean, I guess they could prove that he didn't follow his his life insurance policy, making it null.
0: I, I can see how I guess, they would argue that. I guess, setting aside that this is murder, like right. if this had been, I would like be if really... if he had a, just
1: died of a heart attack or something, right. then they could have contested that too. In fact, they probably would have because it was a heart attack, so.
0: But um, that's convenient. When did she take out that life insurance policy?
1: Yeah, it doesn't say, but it does seem pretty convenient. Did he know she took out that life insurance policy? Uh, again, don't know. <laughs> I would love to see some of the Did reports David on Did David Martin know
0: she took out that life insurance policy? Yeah, these are all very good questions. All which I was thinking as I was reading through all of I this. I bet Ricky didn't know she took out that life insurance policy because they were divorced. Mm-hmm. And he probably would have changed yeah. his beneficiary if he had.
1: Yeah, I would. I would say probably that too. I mean, unless for some reason she just had him win over because they had a great relationship after
0: marriage, even, but. I don't know. And I'm th- I'm going back to these two detector, uh, two polygraphs that she passed, including one denying she had a gun. Yeah, uh-huh. she probably did pass that because she didn't have a gun anymore. She True. wasn't lying True. about that.
1: Yeah, there's there's ways to get around the questions, I believe, but people we, don't like to lie. About that,
0: they they just it's what they don't say. They just leave out the lies. Mm-hmm. Missions are lies. Well, and I think there's other circumstances
1: which kind of allow people to answer questions either in a way they believe or it helps them be able to pass polygraph.
0: And I watched a polygraph interview one time where um, basically they told the person they were interviewing, they were only going to ask them basically yes or no questions. And they just needed to like nod their head or <laughs> shake their head. Oh my. Like to keep them from... Um, Basically evading the questions. I'm like, "Hmm." but sometimes you need those evasive answers because you need to be able to see what they say to Mm -hmm. compare it to other things. Yeah. yeah. What changed from those answers to what they said in their interviews or whatever. But I guess also, you know, for sure, like what answer triggered it. But I've been reading books about this stuff and it says like the best time to tell somebody's line is in the first five seconds of you asking a question. Yeah. Because then they've had a little what is bit their of time reaction? To, to change their... Because like, yeah. The, yeah, it's like, what is their reaction within the first five seconds of the question being asked? Because your brain automatically starts trying to like digest that. And the further out it gets from the question being answered, you're already like processing that. So it gets a little harder to detect those things. So it's like the first five seconds are the most important to pay attention to people's reactions, their body language, the way they, you know, mm-hmm. answer do they pause? Do they stutter? Do they, um, you know, get fidgety? Do you know, I've been doing lots of body language research.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's very interesting. I love that kind of stuff. It really is. It's very, I
1: think we may have mentioned this before, but I used to love watching the show Lie to Me. Yes. And so, I mean, I don't know how much of that is completely accurate, but it was a pretty fair telling of, you know, some of the things that really got me interested in the whole concept. As I said, the investigation pretty much stalled there. And about two years passed. And in July of 1992, David and Tammy filed paperwork with an employer showing that they were married by common law. So they stayed together and apparently must be living together. And basically now they are considered married. And this is where things kind of go Sideways, if they haven't already. I mean, they're a little sideways. Yeah. (laughs) Tammy and David divorced in 1995, but they do remain together. And oddly continuing what was ultimately still considered a common-law marriage. So I have no idea what was up with all of that. First they have a common-law marriage, and then they divorce and still have a common-law marriage. So, I don't know. I've never Uh heard of anybody doing that. (laughs) Okay, that is weird. That is weird. Just one of many things that are weird about all of this. Yeah. In February of 1999, it was time to, I guess, I don't know if she's met the parents before them, but it seemed like it was time to travel and meet or visit with David's parents. And David's parents were Bob and Ann Martin. Apparently, Tammy had a dream about buying a winning lottery ticket after praying in his parents' home. Mm. And that prompted them to decide to make this trip. The story goes that apparently David and his parents were at the dinner table and heads down, bowed and praying. And Tammy apparently wasn't at the table yet and pulled a gun out from her purse and began to shoot (gasps) David. First in the Holy chest sh- and then another in the chest, and she just kept shooting. So I don't know exactly how many times, but several. His dad, Bob, tried grabbing the gun and was also shot, but managed to get her out of the house and locked the front door. However, she broke a window near the front and began shooting again through it. God, she is relentless. Yeah, Apparently, Bob did manage at that point to get the gun away from her. Like, I don't know, he probably was like, you know, trying to um, throw her arm down or something like that and got the gun away. At that point, then, I'm sure the police were already called. I'm guessing probably his mom was calling police while all of this was going on because they don't mention her. But, yeah, so that was the scene at the Martin House in Indiana And amazingly, David survived, as did his father. No fingerprints were found on the gun. And um, the story behind that is one that I would say, I think she manipulated David quite a bit because he apparently believed a story that she was wearing um, like plastic or rubber gloves in the car on the way there so that. She, because she was trying not to bite her nails, and so she what yeah, rubber gloves I have never heard of anybody doing that to you know like I'm trying
0: to think like nursing gloves. I can't think of what the word is I I'm know to say, but like you're going somewhere cold though yeah. it's in the, it's in February, I imagine Indiana's a lot colder than Alabama in February, Why didn't you just put on normal gloves? uh-huh, yeah. so you didn't find it odd that she's wearing like latex gloves uh, thank you latex. <laughs> Okay, so this is also now a pattern Yeah, of rapid-fire shooting. I just, yeah. <laughs> Crazy
1: as well, after all of this, in recovering and obtaining custody of their son, both David and his father asked the prosecutors to go easy on her. He actually withdrew a second divorce that he was trying to put through because of the shooting, he actually withdrew it,
0: and they actually remained together. I'm sorry, but if somebody tries to shoot me and mm-hmm. like continues to try to shoot me even after they've been kicked out, like uh, to the point that they have broken a window to succeed at this yeah, then, um, I'm not staying married, yeah, so no. I'm like <laughs> and I'm sure I'm not asking you to go easy on like keep them as far away from me as possible,
1: yeah, this whole thing was just so crazy just crazy
0: and then i'm also going to tell you about this million dollar life insurance policy and this other run-in we had Mm -hmm.
1: she did get two years after pleading guilty by
0: mental illness which i believe it i believe (laughs) yeah um she actually. not that mental illness is any kind of joke no it definitely not it is serious there's a stigma around it it is not taken serious but I 110% believe that this is one of those cases where that is a solid defense.
1: Yeah, I would totally agree with that. And yes, yeah, so you're right. It is not anything to laugh at. It did, it did kind of strike me. Yeah. And she had had actually a few evaluations. She was able to get on a prison work release program, which is amazing to me after attempted murder.
0: Yeah, Twice, but But I guess she wasn't. I
1: guess when you
0: only get two years
1: to start with and maybe she got treatment, so they thought she was okay and safe enough to work on this kind of a program. Hold my tongue a little bit there because I don't know how anybody could think that. Mm. It is a different time. You know, it's a few years back, so maybe there was some different thinking. I don't know. It's not that different. It's in the 2000s. Well, there was also some... Sort of dispute with Ricky's parents. Can't imagine what after knowing all of this. Mm -hmm. She did have to go back to Indiana again, but she ended up, of course, returning
0: to Moulton to be with David in 2003. Okay, so she pled guilty to the shooting. She got Mm -hmm. work release in Indiana. He left her and came back to Alabama. She's, st- um, when she's on this work release program, was she staying with his parents, I guess? And then they got into go uh, yeah, I don't even
1: know where she was. I don't know if it was a wor- no. So I don't know if work release, do they get to live outside know. of prison or do they just get out of prison like daily or, yeah, I don't
0: know. Uh, well, I assume that's probably a daily thing. Like, yeah. they have somebody that watches over them. Yeah, I would, think- um, so she, but it so says she had to spend time back in indiana again yeah so i'm guessing and then she returned maybe. to alabama so that makes me think that he to be with him so that makes me think that he left her in indiana at some point mm-hmm. And i bet his parents were like we did not make the decision to stay with her after she attacked everybody in our house yeah. you need to be here to deal with this maybe not i'm really maybe not sure not, I, but
1: yeah i'm not sure so i don't know if like After she got the two years and was doing this work release program, then they went back to Moulton, got in an argument with Ricky's parents, and then she had to go back.
0: It sounds like there were charges against her or something.
1: I'm guessing, or at least she broke probation or something. I don't know. So, yeah, more interesting actions. Other smaller events and some psychiatric care happened along the way. They just mentioned some treatment of some sort, but they don't really stipulate what. Tammy eventually stated that she didn't mean to hurt anybody. And apparently, Um. at least as far as the Martin family goes, everybody was forgiven and everything kind of went forward. Well, okay. But this is the point where they do realize at some point during all of this that she does have an insurance policy on David as well. Oh, okay then. And... Why that didn't ring any bells with him, I don't know.
0: But apparently she's all better at this point, it sounds like. (laughs) Okay. Now, I might have to backpedal a little bit on this where I think this is a solid defense. Because you now have two incidents that are so incredibly similar. Mm -hmm. There's a gun involved. There are significant others involved. And... Life insurance policies involved, mhm, yep. and she didn't get charged with the first one, so mm-hmm. it's almost like, okay, this is just opinion, this is just opinion, yeah, um it's almost like, okay, well, if i didn't if I got away with it the first time, yeah. what are the chances I could get away with it again, but this is like the deja vu happening
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I mean, really.
1: I mean, could you even imagine what Ricky's family was feeling when they heard about all of this? I know. And and I'm, you know, I'm reminding everybody here that they started out in Moulton. They went to Indiana to visit parents. And that's why, where all of this happened with the Martin family. But they still they just, live in Moulton. Currently? I'm just reminding everybody of this. Well, so, um, yeah, Ooh. that was coming up. But yes, they're still living in Moulton. Um, I don't have a current confirmation of that, but it sounds like at this point they are still there.
0: So. That's interesting.
1: So it sounds like, yeah, they even people around town, at least at the time of the L.A. Times article, they were still seen in town together at that point. And what did the locals by, say? Did they interview yeah, anybody for that article? Uh-uh, not anything about that particular part of it. I'm wondering um, why they didn't. Yeah. And by the way, uh, the other article, well, and I'll get into that a little bit here, but by the way, the Molten Advisor kind of read, you can kind of read between the lines and nothing is said directly, but you kind of can feel that they're talking about this situation.
0: And, you know, the sad thing. The sad thing about this is, so she did have this life insurance policy on Ricky. Did his children get... um,
1: It's a good question. Have no idea. It doesn't say anything, and you would think it would, but... Yeah. Yeah. One more thing with the Martins. Um, The addresses that I was researching, trying to figure out where they were, um, the Martins and the Terrys, were actually... Right down the road from each other is where they lived.
0: So that was kind of interesting as well. Yeah, I think that's probably like a, you know, Uh you know, but you got to have the evidence to get it there. Yeah, Like, it's one of those incredibly circumstantial things. Absolutely. It does sound, as it should,
1: that her daughter, that reminds you of that, you know, through all of this, there was a daughter from Ricky, and I'm not sure where she was during all of that time. She was seven years old when Ricky died. And she lived, you know, that whole life afterwards, thinking and knowing about what happened with her dad. And, you know, she was so young when it happened. I can't imagine. It sounds like, you know, she is... just struggled very hard with everything not happened, Not knowing, like imagine. knowing
0: the circumstances, And, you know, you don't really know, like, what does she know about everything that happened. Yeah. Yeah. That's tough. Yeah.
1: And Ricky's family has stated that they're not trying to be out to get revenge on anybody or make anybody suffer necessarily, which is kind of where you start to read between the lines knowing that they're there. I'm not saying that that is what they're saying, but it does feel like that's what they're saying. Yeah. Um but they do want justice. And Ricky's father, Ani Terry, passed away in 1993. His mother, Frances, passed in 2018. So they left us without even knowing what happened to their son. And this this seems to happen all the time, you know, that the parents don't get to live long enough to find out what happened to their child who shouldn't have died anyway before they did. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to share a quote that was in the article from April 26th in the Moulton Advisor from Whitney, his daughter. There were many nights that I wondered if someone was going to come and try to hurt me because they hurt my dad. I was angry at everybody for a long time. I only had seven years with my dad, and I have so many memories. I feel like God blessed me with seven years of lots and lots of vivid memories because he knew it was all I was going to get. You know, I think it resonates how children that are left behind probably feel. And I just can't even imagine. That is just heartbreaking. Like, oh, God, that just breaks my heart for her. If you have any information at all about Ricky Terry's murder, please contact the Lawrence County District Attorney's Office. I'll leave that information
0: in the episode details as well. So I had one more very short case
1: that comes out of Lawrence County, and I wanted to share that here because it really didn't have a lot of information, and I didn't want to postpone sharing it because so many of these cases just get left behind
0: and sometimes when there's not a whole lot of information, it still just helps to, like, get it out there.
1: Mm-hmm. And, you know, just to remind, I mean, who's going to do it if we don't,
0: you know? they just Right,
1: right. And this is John Wesley Johnson. In July of 2021, John Johnson left his Hillsboro home in the Mountain Home community near Moulton and was last seen in that area on County Road 294. Which is
0: interesting because I think that's the same road. I was just yeah. thinking this seems like a mm-hmm. familiar area. Oh. Mm. They're not anywhere near okay. each other, but there's still another case right there. It's in Moulton, it can't be that far. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I guess a lot of people lived along. In Mountain there. home, that's where Philip Shelton was found. That, yeah, that's right. That's
1: right. Yep. It doesn't say whether he was driving or walking, and nobody can report what direction he was headed we've heard that a lot in stories, too, that we don't know exactly who it is that reports these people missing or who they saw last. Mm -hmm. But they seem to have seen them last at a certain point and they have no idea where they went, which direction.
0: And I think some of that, too, comes from if it's somebody that you maybe see regularly and if it's not anything uncommon, say like if he was just driving down the road or if he was just walking down the road. And they passed him and they would normally see him at that time or like would it wasn't uncommon to see him on that road. Then maybe, you know, that's why they couldn't remember. But you almost would think like, OK, but you would know if he was walking or driving mm. and I was coming back from or I was going to and he was going the opposite way.
1: hmm. And it may be that they know if he was driving or walking, but this article yeah. didn't Just say. Didn't say. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. There is mixed information about when in July he was seen. So most of what I found just said July of 2021. But uh, in the Charlie Project, it does say July 1st. And I kind of wondered if there wasn't, like, when they submit information to the Charlie Project, whether they, like, have to put a date in there. So if it's mm-hmm. just July, I won't allow them not to put a day. I don't know. But um I guess it's possible that it could be July 1st, um, but publicly this seems to be all that um, was actually reported. There were just a handful of sparse media reports, and I dug around a little bit and did find some Facebook posts from the Lawrence County Sheriff's Office and also some posts from family members. I haven't been able to completely determine what family he still has. Here, but um those on the Facebook pages seem to be mostly like cousins and aunts that were posting anyway. As I was looking through the posts, I saw one that mentioned that the last time they talked to him, I want to say it was July twenty-third. However, unfortunately, in the middle of looking at all of these things, my browser crashed and I'm having trouble finding that again. So I'm oh, gonna keep I hate looking when for happens. it. Yeah, I tried to scroll too far back on Facebook, and sometimes when you do that, it just doesn't like it anymore and it shuts down. (laughs) One of the comments that I saw a couple of times was, why did he not get reported until September? As the reports from the LCSO were dated on September 15th of 21, which is Mm -hmm. almost two months. No comment as to why that is. I haven't seen anything yet, so... I did leave a message for one family member to see if they would be willing to talk to us about the case. And I haven't heard back from them yet. And I understand that they don't want to, but I did want to at least extend that, you know, question out to them. And if I do, then we'll, you know, get
0: back to everybody with an update. I think sometimes, too, um, with that, it's not necessarily that they didn't get, maybe, maybe he didn't get reported missing until September but this goes back to that thing that we always talk about. It They could have reported him missing before then. But in the grand scheme of an adult missing person,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, end of July to the beginning of September really isn't that long. And right. so maybe that's just when they, Lawrence County, could justify saying, okay, you're probably right. right. You know, yeah. because... Yeah autonomy and all that stuff that we always talk about in trying to get these cases taken seriously for adults.
1: And I kind of wonder if July 1st was kind of a roundabout because they couldn't maybe confirm exactly, you know, the situation that happened, whatever it was, if it was July 23rd or whatever.
0: And it's also a hard thing too, like, you know, did his family talk to him every day? If they didn't talk to him every day, if it was common for them to not have communication with them for extended periods then it may Mm -hmm. have been something where they didn't realize that something was wrong and that's not any fault of their own no that happens a lot Mm -hmm. Um, I mean
1: I'll be the first to admit that I don't talk with everybody every day so
0: no you know and you kind of get a different perspective on things when you start looking and dealing with these cases and you talk to family Mm -hmm. members who are you know not as tight-knit as other family members you sure. know they don't have that communication every day they don't talk on the phone they don't text all day or you know other things are going on they just they aren't really all that close and mm-hmm. it's really not a big deal that's just not how they are or you know maybe they have somebody who is dealing with substance abuse or alcohol abuse sure. and that is or not uncommon for they them just to be had gone. a family falling out Right. I mean, so you
1: never just never know what's going yeah. on.
0: Yeah. And it's not that they intentionally didn't report them or were ignoring signs. It's just this wasn't uncommon. But as soon as we knew something was wrong, we did something about it. Right. Yep. Yep. And I think that's something that sometimes families get a lot of grief over because there is a delay in reporting. And there are times where you look at things and when it's like a year later or whatever and you're like, it's a really long time. Um, Mm. But you can't go back and change it. And there's no no point in giving them grief about it. They're they're beating themselves up about it enough most of the time.
1: Yep, they are. And, you know, you just don't know unless you're in their exact shoes. You you can't know what's going on. And I always always err on the side of grace. You know, Mm -hmm. there's... No way of knowing what that family
0: was going through on their end, so. Exactly. And I'll say that you are much better about that than I am sometimes. Most of the time, actually. Sometimes I'm thinking of it, I
1: try to remind myself, you know. John is a Caucasian male who was a bit smaller stature, standing between 5'1 and 5'3 and approximately 115 to 135 pounds. He has blue eyes, and his hair at the time was a blondish or strawberry blonde color. And he has been pictured with a mustache and goatee of the same color or maybe a little bit darker. John has tattoos on his upper right arm, although I haven't seen a description of them anywhere. However, I I did find some pictures online from Facebook, and um, there were a couple of pictures of him that um, partially showed his arm. And the one that I could make out seemed to be kind of like a side view of like a cartoonish man holding a gun at a ready pose, you know, kind of, mm-hmm. I don't know, almost like a video game kind of a video pose. So his arm was like up, up at face level with a little gun in its hand. And it seemed to be kind of, if I saw it, what I was think I was seeing anyway, He was kind of sitting on top of one of those kind of ribbon style banners below it. But it was really hard to make out what it was. So this might not be completely accurate, but it kind of gives you a general idea of what the tattoo looked like. And there was another one that was underneath of it, but I couldn't tell at all what that was. It wasn't Maybe huge.
0: if it's on, is it on John's Facebook? hmm Yeah. And it's a public photo. Maybe we can it share is. it. Maybe we can yeah. like share it. Yeah, I think we should. We, um, we'll um we try to get that
1: cleaned up enough where we can zoom in on it yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Somebody may
0: recognize yep. it. So.
1: Absolutely. As always, if we find out more information on any of these cases, but especially the ones that we really just are having trouble finding information on, like this one, we'll make sure that we provide an update in a future episode. Do you have any information about John Wesley Johnson? Did you talk to John on the day he disappeared or days close to that where he disappeared? Do you know or have you heard anything through the grapevine about what could have happened? his whereabouts, or, you know, just as always, anything you might remember in the days leading up to or after he left home. If so, please contact the Lawrence County Sheriff's Office. And again, we'll leave all of that information
0: in the episode details. If you have any information about the death of Philip Shulton or the disappearance of John Wesley Johnson, please contact the Lawrence County Sheriff's Office at 256-974-9291. If you have any information about the death of Thomas Ricky Terry, please contact the Lawrence County District Attorney's Office at 256-974-2446. Since Alabama Cold Case Advocacy's creation, we have dedicated innumerable hours to researching and networking in an effort to provide the largest platform we can to the cases we share. We shoulder all associated expenses with Alabama Cold Case Advocacy out of our own pocket, Including the subscription fees for researching and production of the Unforgotten podcast to provide a cost free avenue for the victims' families of those cases.
1: We hope you will join in our efforts to raise awareness of Alabama's missing and murdered and support these families who have been forced to carry the immeasurable loss of their loved ones and the fight for answers. If you appreciate our mission and you are inspired to make a donation, your extra support will enable the ACCA to continue our research share the cold cases, and help those families know that they are also Unforgotten.
0: Unforgotten is an Alabama cold case advocacy podcast recorded in conjunction with Riverside FM, hosted and distributed by Spotify for podcasters, available on your favorite podcast platform.
1: Intro music for the show was created by Principles of Uncertainty, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Content and production is by Sellers and Stormy, artwork by Sellers. Credits for music, sound clips, special mentions, and any source referenced in our podcast can be found in each episode's description. We hope you will join us on all the major social media sites and continue to raise awareness of our Alabama cold cases. Until next time, thank you for listening, and remember, justice may be delayed, but the victims and their families remain
0: unforgotten.